We want the Lord to bear up on us what He has shown us so far. And uh, He's shown us some amazing miracles at His death. Remember at the cross. On the cross, all sorts of things were happening. Remember the darkness that covered the whole earth. That's a supernatural working that God did because it was high noon till 3 o'clock. And that shouldn't have happened. There was a veil that was torn in the temple. That's a miracle. Supernatural. The earth was quaking in the way that it did. God sent that. The rocks were splitting. What else was happening? Dead people were coming out of the grave. That's supernatural. Uh, These things cannot be explained by human means other than God is intervening. And by the way, one of the greatest miracles was that Roman soldiers were converted who were unbelievers that same day and mocking and making fun of Jesus and uh, doing all sorts of abuse to him physically and verbally. God intervened in our world, came into this and caused some supernatural events to happen at his death. Supernatural goes beyond the natural. It comes from an outside source. Nobody can pull these off. This is the kind of thing that is uh, where you have a natural order and the natural order is interrupted. Boom. Right there uh, in the face of, on the face of the earth right here uh, was an interruption. That was incredible. He was controlling everything. He was controlling what was happening. He was controlling the very death of his son, how it would be done which was already planned out long before this. And we know that Christ, as we look at Scripture, finished the work of redemption on the cross. And that's the greatest thing as far as we're concerned that happened to us because as we, as He died there, we died with Him. And uh, as we died with Him, our sin was taken away. We were forgiven. And we were given grace. And He has a plan. His plan is all coming together and He's using human means as well as His own sovereign control. He foreordains this and it's coming together precisely down to every little minute detail. He's perfect in every way. And that even includes this burial. And we saw, as we looked at uh, two weeks ago, that's the last time we were here, wasn't it? By the way, last week, thank you guys for coming out, and that was quite a blessing, uh, learning some things about uh, the missionary that was from Russia, and some of the stories that he had. Quite a blessing. A lot of significant elements, I, I think, were happening that needs to be brought to attention uh, when we consider this burial. Two weeks ago, we looked at Joseph of Arimathea. Just happens to be there, just happens to be uh, a leader amongst the uh, Jewish leaders. And he is seen before many people taking Jesus' body. He's being recognized with him. And he is a rich man, and Jesus is buried in a rich man's tomb, which shouldn't have happened by the ordinary means. should have been just thrown into... um, the ground or thrown on the ground or in the trash heap and let the animals take care of it. These prophecies were fulfilled. There were two prophecies fulfilled and showing that he's in total control at the very moment in time. It's an important time in history as this is being played out. And if God is concerned about that happening and our salvation, we know that things that happen to us, whether they be good, bad, indifferent, God is right there. Now, think of that. If He did that with His Son and gave His Son up for us, then we know for us He is doing every little detail and making it work out for the good. So when you are going through things you don't like, just remember the Lord is refining you. He's going to make this work out exactly the way that He wants. And uh, that gives us some great hope and encouragement and uh, I think it uh, it just proves that God is God. And uh, if we just would be in wonder of all this that's happening, there is burial and God controlling this. This is the plan of the ages. Death, burial, and resurrection. Can you think of anything greater? And we just happen to be studying this at this time. 
And as we have the resurrection week, you know, uh, upon us coming up, this is uh, what is known as Palm Sunday, right? Hosanna! He's the son of David. We proclaim that. He's the Messiah. This is at the heart of it all. So contemplate on this a bit. Contemplate on this wonderful characteristic of God. It's called His supremacy. It's what the Puritans would call that. We call it today the sovereignty of God. His absolute supremacy reigning over all. The majestic God controlling it all. He's not a deistic God as He were. He wound it up and He said, let the humans have their free will and let it happen the way it happens. And I'll just take it from there. No, He has it planned out. That should give us comfort. God is above all things. Simple theology, isn't it? Even a, a little kid recognizes that if they've been taught anything at all. God is great. God is good. God's in control of all things. God created. And those basic things have been lost in our country today. You guys believe that? Um, you guys know my son Justin. And he's teaching a youth group uh, at his church on Sunday mornings and Wednesdays, I believe. Or is it? No, no, no. It's Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, I guess. And he started off with teaching some kind of deep things and it was completely all over the head. And he found out they didn't even know what creation really was. They didn't know, get this. Now this I found really hard to believe. Those kids in his class didn't even know what evolution was. He said, well, you, you have been taught evolution in your school, right? And they go, what's that? Now, can you believe that? But they sure didn't know what creation was. He had to back up and say, where are we at in this? He was so taken by this. He, he goes, my goodness, I have to start at the very basic. I have to go to the point of just explaining who God is. And there's one other thing you need to know. John Calvin, in the in Institutes of, of Christian Religion, he said, as he started out, said there's two things we must know. We must know God. We must know ourselves. Is that pretty simple? But it's profound. Because when you know that there is a holy God, starts with creation, He makes everything, He owns everything, we owe our complete allegiance to Him and nothing less. Because He is a Creator God who owns us. Do we really believe that? Well, today, there are worldviews, and there's really only two worldviews. One is the worldly worldview. It's the philosophy of the ages, which is finally mounted to uh, what is really don't know anything. We don't know for sure. It's called post postmodern thought. And that's the... Uh, worldview of the day. Well, that's what you think, and that's okay. Here's what I think, and that's okay too. Everything's just fine, right? And we're all happy about it. We just don't know about certain things, and a lot of things we don't know. But we do know, if we look at the worldview of what Christianity is presenting, we can absolutely know what truth is. And we hold it in our hands today, right here. We bring Scripture, we bring Holy Scripture to a fellowship of other people that believe the same thing that we do. It's been believed for 2,000 years, and we're not alone, although there are a few that find it, but we have been privileged. It wasn't anything of our own. We didn't discover that. How about those kids? Well, for one thing, they weren't taught by their parents. Why aren't the parents doing it? Well, most, most of those parents are going to the church there, gone to the church there for decades. And they, they really they don't even know what life is about. One student in his class uh, challenged him whenever he said that God is the creator, uh, God has given us life, God is uh, against abortion, he is pro-life. And uh, she took that to heart, told it to her parents, and she didn't come back to class again. She went into the adult class. That is where we're at, folks. And this is not what would be considered today as a liberal church. It happens to be... A, an accepted denomination, a Baptist church, and that's some of the things the kids believe or don't believe. Some of them don't even know, and I think 99% of them don't even know what they believe. And so, how, where do you start with on, on that? Well, you start about who God is and where He created. Uh, I think of Acts 17. You know, it's 
then you have to think, you have to show where you're at and what does that mean? Well, He's holy. We're not. And He has a plan. And uh, if you're not trusting in Him, there is a heaven, there is a hell. Those are basic things. Little kids should know that. But we're talking 10, 11, 12, 14, 15-year-olds don't even know that. Some of them have been in church all their lives. That's sad. It saddened him. He just couldn't believe it. You know, and, and the more that he, he talks to him, you know, his heart just cries out. So he's, he's gone back to the very, very basic. And I think that's uh, where we have to be with, with a lot of people. Don't just assume that people already believe in a God. God is in total control. He designed everything in the universe. He has an objective. It goes beyond our comprehension. But yet He's revealed who He is. He is infinite. We're not. We're finite. He is perfect. And we're not. And He works all things together for His will. For His purpose. He is in total charge. Where does that leave us? Lord, You're the King. All I want to do is Worship you. Give glory to you. That's, that's what you want me to do. Okay. Somebody is in charge. The supremacy of God. Let's just review a moment of looking at this majestic attribute of what we already believe. We've heard this a thousand times, but I think it's great to start as we study this uh, aspect of the burial of, of Christ and see what God had in mind all the way from the very outset. Look in First Chronicles, and we're just going to trace through some scripture that deal with the sovereignty of God. This is one of the attributes I would first want to teach somebody who doesn't know about God. And for somebody who do, does know about God, it's a great attribute to go with because maybe they don't believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, which means He controls even our salvation. Are you guys glad He controls our salvation? Where would you be if He didn't control our salvation? would be lost. First Chronicles 29, verse 11. Look at this. This is like praise to God. It is praise. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Where do we get the strength? It's all from here. Everything that we have. The little breath that you took this morning. And as you continue to take. And you'll continue to take until He takes it from you. Was given to you. By Him. He has the power. All the power. All the glory. The victory. The majesty. Everything that's in heaven. All the things that are on earth. It's all His. He owns it all. He owns your body. He owns your voice that you sing with. You know, he, he, uh, he owns your hands that you turn the pages with. He owns everything. He is sovereign. Look in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 6. You've got to like these kind of verses. This gets things right in the right perspective. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand there is not power and might, there, so that no one is able to withstand you. The question is asked, is there not power and might there? Nobody can withstand the Lord, right? Nobody. But yet... The biggest percentage in all the world tries to withstand this great, majestic God. They don't know the truth. Job chapter 23, verse 13. This is before the Psalms, right? Job, you remember, was laid out in a suffering far beyond our comprehension. I don't think anybody's ever been as far as uh, Job. I mean, as far as anybody sitting in here. They feel like it at times. Of course, Jesus exceeded the sufferings that Job had, but uh, this is quite a picture. And uh, he just starts proclaiming God's righteous judgments. God can do anything that He wants, Job 20-13, but He is unique, and who can make Him change? Whatever His soul desires, that He does. Whatever He desires. Can you imagine that? 
He's going to do. Now, a lot of people in the world today like to say, whatever I want to do, I'm going to do. I don't care. There's nobody that's going to be stopping me. I'm going to do it. Oh, the audacity for anybody to ever say that. Do they not know who God is to say, I can do whatever I want? In the New Testament, it says, we don't know. You know, you may, you may be planning all these things for tomorrow, and yet you may not even be living tomorrow, right? It's like, it's, like in James, it says that uh, if it's His will, right? Those are positive confessions of the... Uh, some of the church today is saying, you know, if you proclaim something positive, it will happen. It will come true. Want a new car? Want a new helicopter? Want a new house? Just proclaim it. Say it enough and believe it. Believe it. Believe it. Believe it. Come on. Say it. Say it. You name it. You believe it. <laughs> and you can have it. That is the philosophy of the world, isn't it? Nice. Nice. But it's not biblical. Psalm 115, verse 3. Never to presume upon God. If it's His will, then great. If that's what he wants, then that's what I want. Psalm 115, um, this is David writing, But our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Don't you like that? These are so simple, but yet they can be forgotten so easy. He does whatever He pleases. Stay in the Psalms. Go to Psalm 135 and verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all deep places, as far as the deep can go, he's in control. As far as the universe goes, he's in control. Have you seen some of those great pictures that the Hubble telescope has been bringing out? Things that are like, what, millions of light years away, and they're getting these pictures, and you see Louis Giglio talking about it. Have you seen some of those videos? It's just incredible. You say, who's Louis Giglio? Well, uh, if you want to see some of these pictures and, on video and what he has to say about it, just ask and we'll get it to you. That's really good. It has a lot of videos coming out. Creation, outer space, and then inner space, right into the body. Laminin. You guys know about laminin? That's a great story, isn't it? You say, what is laminin? Ask us later. It's a great, great story what's happening there. Now, uh, the Psalms, well, we need the Proverbs. Proverbs 21, verse 30. There is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. You say, yes, there is. Well, there's a lot of philosophy out there and it stands against the Lord. Well, it's not going to prevail, is it? It's not going to win. It all fades out. It all will finally go. All those same teachings of long ago, they're still here. There's only two religions. One religion says I'm saved by grace and nothing else. And it's grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Scripture alone. Glory to God alone. And the other religion says, ah, here's what I have to do. Here's what I have to do to get, get to nirvana. Here's what I have to do to get to heaven. You know, and I have to die a million times and, and uh, finally I can get it right to where I can get into nothingness. Nirvana. <laughs> Boy, that's a bright future, huh? We have a great future if we look in Scripture, the truth. Isaiah. We'll look at the prophets here for a moment. Uh, we looked at Chronicles, we looked at Job, Psalms, and Proverbs, Isaiah 46.10. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand. I love this last line. And I will do all my pleasure. God does what He pleases. He's a God of pleasure. You guys like that? Just, well, that sounds kind of narcissistic or something, doesn't it? God just wants pleasure, and you betcha. He is a God of pleasure. He is perfect in His knowledge of what pleasure is. You guys like pleasure? Happens sometimes. Just being pleased. Just being able to do some things that you like. And recognize, hey, God gave us this, and we can enjoy it. Out on the beach in the month of March or April when it's cold back here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of things that we enjoy doing. And that's a good thing. God is a God of enjoyment because His will is done that pleases Him. And even when He had to send His Son on the cross, Isaiah 53 says that was His pleasure to do that. And I don't understand that totally. All I can do is say, I believe it. 
And I know when there is no more sin, we will experience perfect pleasure 100% of the time, if there's any such thing as time there. All my eternity, I will be enjoying God. Chief in the man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? And God is most glorified when we're satisfied in Him. Have you guys heard that before? What a great God. Let's look at another prophet, just in case these guys were just kind of uh, expanding on something a little bit more than what the truth was, right? We know that's not the case. Basic scripture, but these are good to draw upon when somebody wants to talk about the sovereignty of God, and they say, well, God can't do that, though. God wouldn't send everybody to, to hell, or God wouldn't send anybody to hell. They don't like His wrath. But God can do anything He wants, can He not? All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. What? I don't like that God of the Old Testament, someone may say. What does it say here? They're nothing. He does according to His will. In the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Now, who wrote this? Some Jew like Moses or somebody, right? Or Daniel wrote this. Well, Daniel wrote it, but who said it? Nebuchadnezzar. Who was Nebuchadnezzar? Well, he was a leader of one of the greatest empires ever in the history of the world, of mankind. The Babylonian Empire. Incredible. And he's praising God. I think he got converted. Do you think that? That whole passage there in verse 34 and 35. I like at the end of verse 34. And I, right at the end of it. I bless the Most High, El Elyon, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom is from generation to generation. Then He says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. There's the great God. You know what? He took the two points of Calvin. Know God and then know yourself. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the arm of heaven among the heavens of the earth. No one can restrain His hand. Wow. He's powerful. We're not. God, I throw myself on you. I ask for mercy. Right? Well, when He grants that mercy, isn't it incredible? The rest of your life just changes, doesn't it? Okay. So, we've looked at Old Testament. We're going to look at one more. This is a New Testament passage. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. You mean there's only one verse about the sovereignty of God in the New Testament? Well, just in case people say, well, he's sovereign in the Old Testament, in the New Testament he's not. Well, Paul says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Well, the foundations of the world, there was a council. If we can look at it humanly, I don't know how you could say, you know, there's a, but it was the Trinity that somehow got together and made this plan from eternity past. I put quotes there. And that was his will, that was his purpose, and nothing can ever thwart it. It will come about exactly the way that he wanted. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that great? Anyway. I think to sum all these verses up, uh, it would be good to look at Romans 11, uh, right around the last verse there of Romans 11. I think verse 33 would be good. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor? That sounds familiar. Or who has first given to Him, and it shall be repaid to Him? Here we go. Can you guys say this? For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. Boy, does that sum it up? Everything's in Him. Okay. He's in charge. God rules in this world through two ways. Two ways He rules. One way is through miracles. 
And we saw that on the cross. Just a few instances. The darkness, the earthquake, the Roman soldiers becoming believers. He overrules natural law. A miracle is something that doesn't happen every day. A miracle is not something that we command that it happen. A miracle is going to happen supernaturally and it's going to be unusual. Even a birth of a baby, even though that is considered to be some kind of a miracle, people say, oh, what a miracle. But those happen every day. So I think in the biblical language, and I know it's from God, and God gives life, so that's supernatural, so I don't want to take that away. But the miracle aspect has to be careful with that because they're born every... Somebody's being born right now. I mean, right now. Click it off. Somebody's being born. All right? If they're not being aborted. But, uh, you know, that isn't everyday happening. A miracle can't naturally happen. God in history has reached down and intervened in our world certain times. Now, he's always controlling everything, and that's where we get to the second aspect about providence. But the miracle thing is what we want to look at just for a moment. Creation was a miracle because he did something that hadn't been done before. And in creation, you have the first great interruption. He interrupted the order that he had had and brought in this world and the universe. He created out of nothing. Ex nihilo. And how can anything come from nothing? And that right there just blows evolution totally away. Just for the fact of you have a cause and then you have an effect. How can you have an effect without a cause? It's always that way. That's science. Science says if we can test something, if there's something that has happened before and then we keep looking at it, there has, there has to be a cause. There has to be a cause to this universe, right? That, that is, that's a gimme to me. But that's where people stumble so much today. Then the flood was a supernatural event. God caused that to happen. It's a bad thing, but it's going to work out for good. Then the plagues in Egypt, that's where he started doing miracles again. He did the flood, then he came back and then did miracles through Moses. And we see those ten plagues. And then, you know, parting of the Red Sea. That was one of those, many of those. How about the manna in the wilderness? That was during the time of Moses when we get miracles. Then there was another time period where he intervened. And it was like about, oh, 800 years later after Moses. And that was dealing with Elijah and Elisha. And you remember the supernatural events that happened there. The raising of a boy from the dead an axe head floating, Elijah being caught up in a whirlwind and going up to be with the Lord. Incredible things happening there. And then the time of Christ. You don't have a lot of miracles then after that. There are certain time periods. Moses, or you can go back to the creation, the flood. Then you go to Moses, the giving of the law. Then you go to the time of the prophets. The law and the prophets. And you have Elijah and Elisha and some of the things that happened during uh, the prophets' ministry. We see uh, some miracles there. So that's one way that God rules in the world. He can come in and stop something, start something. He can do anything He wants at any time, come into this world and do it. But a second thing that He does, and this is even more incredible, and this is usually the way that He works, and it's called providence. God's providence. What is providence? This is the usual way. He orchestrates all things to bring His purpose to the end. Right now, He's working things out that it's going to come to the end. He's working in that. He puts, He's going to pull all things together. All the things that He's done according to plan. He's superintending the universe. He's the superintendent of it. And he's controlling it through normal, natural processes. And so... Uh, he, he works through people. He works through weather. Uh, all sorts of circumstances. And it, it may not be necessarily supernatural things, right? Weather is natural. It's nature. Somebody will say, well, that was Mother Nature that did that. Who is Mother Nature? Where have you seen Mother Nature in the Bible? God is doing that. Well, God wouldn't send a hurricane and kill 500 people. Well, then, who did it? 
Or what did it? Satan did it, they'll say. You mean Satan is out of control and he can do anything he wants and God didn't have anything to do with it? I guess so. Well, then God's not in control, then, is he? He's in control of everything. Even the worst thing that we can imagine, death. We think death is the worst thing that can happen. Well, if you're a Christian, uh, it's really the release from your body into the presence of God. So we even have a biblical view, a world view of death. And I'm not trying to be morbid. I'm just, you know, I don't want to say, hey, we want to go around trying to die or wanting to die. But yet, if it's God's purpose that somebody dies, that was the perfect time that they were to go out. They came into the world by His knowledge and His process. And they go out of the world. He appoints a time. There is a time, right? Ecclesiastes talks about it. God orchestrates these events. He has a predetermined purpose. He accomplishes what He wants done. And uh, at the same time, people are free to do the things that they want as far as God will allow. And uh, you're free to, um, to come here today. You're free not to come here today. You chose to come here today. God didn't make you come, but you chose here because you wanted to. And you have that desire. You want to honor God, right? And uh, so all the things you've done this morning, you chose to do that. You're free in that. Of course, because of sin, you're not free to choose God. Uh, those are the supernatural things of, of Him that belong to Him, and we can't touch that realm. We can't get in the supernatural realm until He opens our heart up. So He, he takes all events, He superintends them, and He's flawless in everything He's foreordained. He can't fail once. It seems like random plans that are happening. You could, you could pick up uh, the newspaper today or look on the internet and see some random things that happen in the world today that are good, that are bad, that are indifferent, things just happening. You say, well, God doesn't deal with that. Uh, he just sits back and let it happen. But yet it's still, in the, people are making choices at the same time. They're doing their actions. People are doing this and they're continually being worked together to perform God's predestined plan. Now, how about that? That's why I say predestination is even more incredible than miracles because God is taking the very actions of mankind and they're doing by their own freedom to do that. Yet at the same time, God is making sure that it works together in His plan and He never causes anybody to sin. And man is held responsible for his sin. God never makes him sin. And so you have the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Now, try to put that together in your finite mind and you'll never figure it out. God has it figured out. I believe it. So we, that's why we're to do what he, uh, he wants us to do. So, does God use miracles much? Not usually. But there were times when he unleashed those miracles. And we talked about that. And the apostles even did miracles. This was at the time of Christ and the apostles. Remember, they did some of the same thing that he did. They, uh, and then the Word of God was established. No longer did we need miracles anymore because everything that we need to know as pertaining to life and godliness is found in Christ. It's found in the Word of God. We don't need anything else. We have it all. We don't need to be proven. And Jesus says that the, uh, the sign that He was going to be given was the death and the burial and resurrection, just like Jonah was in, in the fish, right? So now... We see that the gospel has been validified. Let's go back to Proverbs 16.9. Still keeping the thought of God's sovereignty. A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Is there something in you that you like to do, that you want to do? Well, God, if, if you're desiring His will, probably has put that in you to do. He's given you your own individual talent and your abilities and spiritual gifts. And you might have a way that's planned and it might be exactly the way that the Lord wants or it may not be and He might let you go that way for a while and steer you as you look for His will into the very path that He's going to have you there. And he's going to direct your steps. He's going to make sure it happens the way that He wants it. Because it's best for you, because He knows He created you to be different than anybody else, and the way that you respond 
um, accordingly is going to make a difference. Verse 21 of Proverbs, there are many plans in a man's heart, and that's what's dangerous. Our heart sometimes is really dangerous, right? Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel that will stand. Our hearts can be thinking right and be on the Word of God and have our mind renewed, but if our heart is on something else but the things of God, His counsel is going to stand anyway. I'd much rather be in His will as He's doing His counsel rather than being out of His will because it could amount to some painful things. (laughs) Jeremiah 10, verse 23, uh, the prophet says this, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Oh, for us selfish people. That's the way we would like it a lot of the times. We have our own thinking, our own way. Let me tell you, if you're out of step with God's plan, and you you are the Lord's, He'll whip you back into shape. He will put you back on that path. But he might let you stray off of it for a while. And um, the the thing is, is that he does discipline. And he'll use that. Are you really in his will? Are you really designing what he... You know, you don't play around with God. Have you truly been in his word? This week, have you studied what his will is? Have you been searching it out? Have you been filled with his spirit? Did you know that's not an option? To be filled with the Spirit? You say, well, I want to be filled with the Spirit on Sunday and then the rest of the week, after church is over, then I I don't want to be filled with the Spirit. I I want to do what I want to do. It sounds like a charismatic thing. And it is. I hate that the charismatic Pentecostal thought has taken that great word away. That means gifted. Charismata. Right? But... um, the thing is, they're talking about being filled with the Spirit and they're thinking about some spiritual high and speaking in tongues and doing some great unnatural things, but being filled with the Spirit is singing with God's people, it's praying with God's people, it's sharing things of the Word of God with God's people. You know, those kind of things. Being in the Word of God, it's, that's filled with the Spirit. So if you haven't been doing those things, I would venture to say you probably are not filled with the Spirit and you're disobedient, you're sinning, and you need to repent right now. <laughs> what do you think of that? If He's a sovereign God, I think it should want to even make us Christians to submit to Him even more. Shouldn't it? If we see all these Scriptures, do we believe it? Or do we want to go our own way and just kind of go off on our own and just do our own thing? Get away from me. I want to do my thing and I don't care what it is. Here's what the world tells me, and I'm going through certain things, and I can do that because this is what I'm going through right now. So leave me alone. Can I do that? Do I have the option to do that? Do I? Mm-mm. We don't. We don't own ourselves. How about the story of Joseph? Remember him? There's a providence of God. Remember his brothers? What they did? They sold him. Went down to Egypt. What was he? Turned out to be a servant. And then we know that the um, owner's wife then tempted him and what did he do? He ran. Got out of there. She says, he says. Well, he had the truth. She didn't tell the truth. He winds up in jail. Winds up in there for how long? 13 years? Uh, what's, what's the deal, God? God's working this out. Happens to send a man there at, at precisely the right time. He knows that Joseph is uh, one who can interpret dreams and uh, at that specific time, the leader of the nation wants to know what a dream is about, and he, he's able to interpret it. This sounds familiar. You can think of Daniel, same kind of thing. And he becomes the right-hand man of the Pharaoh. And he was a man from Israel. He's in the nation that is has enslaved him, and now all of a sudden he becomes a slave and, and a prisoner, and now he is the leader, one of the leaders of the greatest nation in the world at the time. God's Providence. God made that happen. And uh, Joseph had to go through some terrible things. How about the story of Ruth? Ruth. Uh, you have that really Naomi and her family went down um, south there uh, in east of uh, Israel to avoid the famine. Got away from that. 
and then her husband dies, and then her sons die after they had taken wives, and Ruth wants to come uh, back with Naomi. Ruth then uh, then meets a man, and you get a picture of uh, redemption there as uh, the man Boaz and winds up taking her as his wife. And through that relationship, you get the line of David that leads right on up to Jesus. But it was all natural things that happened. Just natural things. This is God's providence. Think of the story of Esther. When uh, the nation of Israel was under captivity, the, you think of the Medes and the Persians, and uh, Esther happens to be one of the most beautiful women of the Jews, and she's taken uh, by the king, and um, because of the, her status and her bravery and courage, uh, she is uh, able to, as working through the Lord, to do what? To save the nation of Israel. Because God has a plan for Israel, and they're not going to be destroyed. There was a guy by the name of Haman who wanted to kill all the Jews that were in captivity. Kill them all. That has happened throughout history, hasn't it? And in the 1930s, we know that Hitler then started his actions upon the Jews. And the six million were killed. On and on we think of that that story. Uh, but God had his plan. And he's going to work through that. He controlled history. Then the death of Christ. We see miracles. We see providence. All working together. This is probably the greatest illustration. God used all human and demonic forces to kill his son. But yet God had it in mind for this to happen that way. Otherwise it wouldn't have. This was his redemptive plan. God used the hatred of the Jews and the animosity of the Romans, the Jews and the Gentiles alike. And they hated Jesus. God even used the cowardice of the disciples to work out this burial and the resurrection. And the betrayal of Judas He worked out. That was even foretold. Providence is so evident in through this. You remember the, the day when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem? And this is the day that we celebrate uh, as we say, Hosanna, right? Palm Sunday. Whenever he came in there that very day, uh, Passover lambs were being selected for the family as that Passover would be taking place in four days. And so he was the lamb. He typified that. as They had their lambs. And then we know that he died on the, the cross the same time the Passover lambs were being sacrificed for the people, the nations. Not by accident, isn't it? Perfectly drawn out. Look in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. God has a plan. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, now this is Paul speaking to Jews, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose, he's speaking to God here, this is his praise to him, determined before to be done. Now here's the nation of Israel and Pontius Pilate, the Jews and the Gentiles, and he says, here's what they did. And then 28, he bounces it out and says, to do whatever your hand and your purpose, God, whatever you determined beforehand. Wow. How can that happen? All the, the little things that uh, happened on the cross that David foretold in Psalm 22 that Isaiah told about in Isaiah 52. God uses all this to bring about His perfect plan. I think at the burial of Jesus, it's obvious as you see providence happening, God does things sometimes that even seem, may, uh, I guess, kind of like mundane. Things that are just just ordinary the burial that's an ordinary thing to do for people who have died but the enemies their schemes are involved in this burial the enemies are involved in this it's a testimony to see who this Messiah is to show before all the world the story of Joseph here's the positive aspect we, we already read that Arimathea perfect timing that he comes along now, today, we turn to the enemies of Jesus. And again, the providence of God is seen through 
people who try to thwart the very purpose of God. They're going to use their evil plans. God is going to take those evil plans and put it right in, and He already has, it's part of the plan, to come out perfect. Only God could do that. And this is a testimony to who the Lord is. So, we just have a few verses here today, and most of our message has really been done. Okay, you ready? We go to part three. Dealing with God used Pharisees to be a witness of the burial. Of all things. They don't want to be a witness to Christ, do they? Well, God's going to make them be a witness. This is just incredible. Where are we picking it up at? Verse 62? uh, Matthew 27, 62? On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember, while he was still alive, how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. They went out and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Alright. This is great. With all that we just looked at, realizing the providence of God, here it is. We talked about the two prophecies a couple of weeks ago. Isaiah 53, 9. He's going to be buried with a rich man. Matthew 12, 40. It talks about being in the earth uh, three days and three nights uh, dealing with Jonah. Right? Okay, we studied that. We looked at that. So that was a positive thing. Now we look at the Pharisees and the chief priests, the chief priests basically were the Sadducees. Okay, politically, Pharisees, they are the conservative group. Legalistic. Sadducees, what are they? The opposite. What are they? Liberals. And they're not legalistic. Anything else. Especially if it works for them. You have two groups here. Do you think they like each other? Do you think they kind of respect each other though? No. They hate each other. When you have liberals and conservatives, they stay away from each other or they really go at it. Now I'm sure they had their debates. Yes, they did have their debates. These guys are going to wind up coming together to be a testimony to the very deity of Christ even though their intentions was nowhere near what God had in mind. They don't know that they're going to help prove the death, burial, and resurrection. Especially this burial now. Okay. Quick. The next day. The next day. What is the next day? Well, we've just been talking about the burial. Before, before the Sabbath, there is a day called the preparation day. It's always been known as that. Still is known as that. It's been that way. That's the day before the Sabbath. Preparation day is Friday. And this is why we have to say that this is the idea of on the third day he will rise again, as we'll see in this passage as it opens up. On the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. Okay. What we have is you have... Um, Joseph Arimathea, you have Nicodemus who comes there to help anoint the body, um, make it smell better. Um, then you have Mary Magdalene and Mary sitting opposite the tomb. That was on the very day of the crucifixion. They have to get him buried. They have to get him in the tomb on that Friday before 6 o'clock because that's considered the first day. That's why all this timing is so perfect. The providence of God is at stake here. And God raises up the right man to put him at the right place at the right time. And so now, that was the preparation day. That was the day before the Sabbath. Look at John 19.31. And I think this will uh, pin it down for us. This puts the nail right through the coffin. <laughs> All right. 1931. Therefore, 
and, and if you back up, you'll see the context. It's dealing with hyssop and the sour wine, and Jesus says it is finished. Therefore, because it was the preparation day. What day is that? That's Friday. He's dying on Friday. That the body should not remain on the cross on the what? The Sabbath. Why did they have to take him, uh, take him down and put him in the tomb? Why? Because it was Friday, tomorrow is the Sabbath, and we can't have him hanging up at night because that's a curse, and also because tomorrow is the Sabbath, we can't have him there. We've got to put him in there. That's what they're thinking as far as the law is concerned. The right man, though, comes up and makes sure that he's not put in a wrong grave. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, which is going to be at 6 o'clock, a few hours, for Sabbath was a high day, and that means that's a Sabbath on a festival week, and that's called a high Sabbath on that very day. It's, It's the very next day after preparation day. Do you have any problem now with him being crucified and buried on Friday, the first day? The second day starts at 6 o'clock. That is Saturday. The third day then would be Sunday. With John speaking about this, and of course that's why we see the legs being broken and such, I don't think there is any discussion any further because we have preparation day, then right after that it's the Sabbath. We cannot turn it into a Wednesday or Thursday. There's no option here. What we do, we do injustice to the text. And I think we don't want to do that. We have to treat it for what it says. And one might say, well, what about the... And we, and we do. We ask, what about the three days and the three nights? Well, we have a conflict, conflicting situation. God is lying then, one of the two. Somebody pinned it down wrong, right? Three days and three nights. I can't do this. So we, we try to start backing it up and trying to say something that's not saying. And all that is is a euphemism. Three days and three nights. Any part of one day, uh, the word uh, ono to the Jews was uh, any day. If, if, uh, if, like in two minutes, tomorrow would be considered to be, it would be tomorrow, this would be the first day. And then into that day. Just any part of that is considered a day and a night. So with that, I think we can put them in conjunction with our 1931 and with our Matthew 27 passage, and I think we have it settled. I think it is um, very clear. And we've all had questions on that. We've dealt with it. We've gone back and forth over the course of years. And then after I look at this, I go, you know, there's no way that I can go back to that Thursday thing anymore. Uh, I think it's, it's too obvious, the preparation day and the Sabbath. What else do you do with it? And then you go with what the Jews said whenever he said three days and three nights. It was the, the whole idea. And Jonah was, uh, in, as he was in there, he was buried, you know, in that sense. Now, um, Strange bedfellows, Pharisees and Sadducees, they're against Jesus. They go to Pilate. Well, what's the deal there? Well, Pilate is the, you know, the, the Roman ruler here, the governor here at the time. They have to get permission. Where do they go? They go to the praetorium where he's at. Um, it's interesting um, that they would go there again. And the day before, they didn't go into the praetorium. They didn't enter there. For it was a Passover, and they didn't want to get defiled because of the Passover. But now what's the deal? This is the Sabbath now. It's on the next day, which follows the day of preparation. It's the Sabbath. They're going to this Roman ruler. They hated Jesus more than their own law. They made up a law that says you don't go to the Gentiles, and you don't go to their house. And here it is on Sabbath that they're going there. They made up that rule. They're breaking their own law. They violated because they hated Jesus so much. People will go out of their way. And, and uh, Pharisees, Sadducees getting together to, to make this thing come true. And they're going to say, okay, what are we going to do now? We've heard that he said he's going to resurrect. Now, we know he's not going to resurrect, but what happens if, some, if the disciples get together and take him out of that tomb, which they could very well do? Then, the, then they're going to say, well, hey, he resurrected. He's out of here right now. So now that they're putting together, oh, we've got to do something. They had such contempt for him even after he died. Maybe it could be also that there wasn't a crowd around and maybe they entered the praetorium because of that. Nobody saw him now. It's the Sabbath and people are, are uh, not around there. What do they call him? They call him the deceiver. Uh, so remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said... You know, they can't even call him Jesus. They can't even call him anything but deceiver here. That deceiver. So what did he deceive them of? There's nothing. They call him that. Uh, they're thinking that, listen, if he could pull off something, he'd do it. 
If he made it already in his plan that disciples that would take his dead body, then everybody would think this, this hoax could really be a problem for us. Let's take care of it. So, they say, uh, they said in verse 63, after three days, all right. That, that means soon as the third day has even started in their thought, after three days, on, on this third day, or after that third day has started, like on that, on that Sunday, on that third day. At this point, they realized he had made a statement about being buried, and then that he would rise after that same time period in Matthew 12, 40. Uh, quickly, trace through Matthew. Matthew 16, 21. Jesus has been saying this all along. Early in his ministry, he had said it in Matthew 12. Matthew 16, verse 21. Quickly says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Chapter 17, verse 23. And they will kill him, and the third day he'll be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Chapter 20, verse 19. And deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. The idea is there's going to be a resurrection. He keeps pressing that forward. We can look into Mark and and see some of the same passages. One more, I want to turn to John chapter 20, verse 9. And and look at the the blockheads here, the disciples. Oh, I can't believe this. Can't believe this. Yeah, I can. Human just like we are. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. This is dealing with the time of the resurrection of Christ, the first day of the week. And they just put, couldn't put it together. The scripture said, Jesus had already said it to them in person. <laughs> they couldn't conceive of the idea of the Messiah dying. That's the whole thought. Can't, why does he have to die? Uh, well, anyway. There's going to be a guard. It's going to have to be sent. And that's what's being said here in Matthew 27. They talk to Pilate. Pilate responds, um, He says, therefore, in verse 64 in Matthew 27, command that the tomb be made secure. Okay, we're going to secure this thing. Until the third day. Until that third day. His disciples come by me, steal him away, and save the people he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Okay, Pilate says, command that this be made secure. We already know he's dead. It's been proven that he's dead. They all know that he died. It's very proven. We saw the miracles that happened at that time. We saw the spear then go through his side. All those things. All the providence of God has happened. Romans know it. The Jews know it. Everybody knows he's dead. Put the Roman seal on him. Connect that with the, um, the, the rock you know, of the tomb there. And put that seal on in the sense that we want to make sure that nobody's going to steal this. Because if a, if a seal is broken, it can mean death. It means capital offense that you have just done against the Roman government. The tomb was under Roman protection at this time. And that's what they wanted. They wanted uh, some guards out there. There's uh, Some people say as many as six to even more than six. Uh, anyway, you have a wax on the wall and a wax on the, the rock, the stone, and this string. And it has it's like saying, this is the Roman seal. What if there had been no guard there and no Roman seal? Well, it would be awfully hard as you're preaching the gospel, which the apostles did later, and which we do today, It'd be awfully hard to preach the resurrection. Because the lie has been said, well, yeah, he died, but he didn't rise because the disciples went and took his body up. Of course, that's what the Jews wind up paying people to say. But the fact of the matter is, is that this was very legitimate 
we know that there could have been room for doubt had not God made the Romans and the Jews be a part of this whole burial. Isn't this incredible? And we have evidence to say, tell you what, he was put in that tomb. There were Roman guards and they were never to go to sleep. And if someone go to sleep, you have some at least one or two awake to make sure that nobody can come in there at night. By the way, you do have that great big stone that's rolled up there that weighs how much? A thousand, two thousand pounds? It takes people to roll this thing back. You can't do it on your own. Somebody just can't slip in there. And if you did, I guarantee you, if you have gar- all the guards sleeping there at this time, they would have heard this. We have proof, don't we? It's very legitimate. This is lock tight evidence. Use it if you have to. God made sure that there would be no excuse in not believing in the resurrection. And uh, we, we close it out here. Pilate says, you have a guard, go your way, make it secure as you know how. So they went, made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. If the people would somehow believe there was a resurrection, they know this, if they would start believing, even though it didn't even happen, this would be a threat to Rome. Because if this guy is this big to make people believe that he resurrected, it was another one of his miracles. This is why Pilate is kind of concerned about this too. If the crowds were as big as they were on that, what day was it? When he first came in? Palm Sunday? You remember those huge crowds? It could have been tens of thousands. It could have been hundreds of thousands or more seeing his entrance, hailing the king. And if you had that many people coming and chanting about the resurrection, well, we, we, we have to do something about this. They, they would acclaim him as king and maybe they wouldn't even be threatened by the Romans at all. That would cause an uprising, wouldn't it? So he takes the Jews' advice on this. Again, they're telling him what to do and then he tells them what to do. <laughs> the purpose of the Jewish leaders and Pilate was to prevent a hoax. The only thing is, it was not a hoax. We close this out with saying the Lord had a purpose. The Lord's purpose was to take even unbelieving antagonism and hatred for Jesus and use that to prove the reality of the resurrection. Only God could have done that. He uses the bad people and their bad sin to show that He was deity, that Christ is for real. Jesus' enemies played a huge role in all this. In His death, in His burial, the resurrection. You see what they, they are there? They assured that this resurrection was true when they did what they did. So the only thing they can do now is make up a lie. So they spread the rumor, but they knew it was impossible to do. They knew that something has happened here. We have to cover this up now. And you have to be embarrassed if you're a leader. You had your guards up there. You had the seal there. And the disciples who are chickens are going to come and steal his body away from these guys? I don't think so. All this does is condemn them. Look further ahead in Matthew 28, 11-14. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest all the things that had happened, uh, the resurrection, the appearances. When they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers saying, uh, tell them... Uh, his disciples uh, came at night. They stole him away while while we slept. Yeah, I know we're soldiers. We were sleeping there uh, on duty. And if this comes to the governor's ears, uh, to Pilate, we'll, we'll just appease him and you know and make you guys safe. You know we know that you guys your lives are at stake now, but we'll we'll cover it up somehow. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. When Matthew wrote this, they were still telling that lie. But the thing is, uh, people had trouble believing that lie because they knew that it had been made secure. Anyway, incredible, isn't it? God uses His own people and He uses His enemies to work out His plan. When we go through conflicts, when they seem hopeless to us, What we have to do is look in the Scripture to see how God uses every circumstance for the good. 
it ultimately works for His glory, doesn't it? Did this work for His glory? You know it. Romans 8.28 says, God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Father, we thank You. Thank You for this day. Thank You for Your truth. Thank You for Your providence, Lord, as You have worked through and continue to work through something beyond our understanding. And yet You use us in this plan, in this grand scheme, in this great story of all time, you are using your people and you even use evil people. You'll even use sin for your glory. It's hard to comprehend, Lord, but it is an amazing thing. We believe it. And as we go out of here today, may we continue to honor and glorify you for you being the sovereign God that you are, we say to you, Amen.